Ezra chapter 10. This will be our our last sermon in this series on the book of Ezra. I've been richly blessed going through this book of the scriptures. And we're going to look at the entirety of Ezra chapter 10. And before we look at Ezra chapter 10 and read through that chapter, there's some necessary information for understanding Ezra chapter 10. It's very much following on from Ezra chapter 9. In Ezra chapter 9, we learned that God's people have failed to separate themselves from the pagan people of the surrounding lands. And they have failed to be that people set apart as they ought to be. They have joined themselves, the Holy Seed has joined with those who worship other gods and idols. We're also told in Ezra chapter 9 verse 6 of the state of Ezra's heart. He says, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face. And we meet Ezra here at the beginning of chapter 10 weeping. He is, he is broken hearted. He is not unaffected. He is not cold. He is not um, calm and unaffected in, the, in these situations. But out of this prayer came great change. That we see in Ezra chapter 10. God's people no doubt drifted into sin. Not seeing how bad it truly was. But now they'd come to a point of repentance, public repentance, acknowledging their sin, binding themselves to God, covenanting before God to follow God, promising before God to obey him. So Ezra chapter 10, let us read now from God's holy and infallible word. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign wives from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God To put away all these wives and their children. According to the counsel of my Lord. And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise for it is your task. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel swear. That they would do as they had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders all this his property should be forfeited 
and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. I, it was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign wives, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many. And it is a time of heavy rain and we cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two. For we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. And with them the elders and judges at every city. Until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter be turned away from us. Only Jonathan the son of Asahel and Jaziah the son of Tikvah opposed this. And Mashalom and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected them, heads of fathers' houses according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign wives. Now, there was found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Messiah, Eliezer, Jarob, Gedaliah, and some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedach and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilty offering, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock of their guilt, of the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zabadiah, and the sons of Haran. Mishaiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jahiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pasher, Elioni, Meshiah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad, and Elisa, of the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Kelei, that is Kelita, Pathahiah, Judah, and Eliezer, of the, of the singers, Eliashib, of the doorkeepers, Shalom, Telum and Uri, and of Israel the sons of Parash, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkajai, Mijamin, Eleazar, Hashabiah, and Benaiah, of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, of the sons of Zatu, Elioni, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad and Aziza. Of the sons of Bebai were Johanan, Hananiah, Zabai, Athli. Of the sons of Bani were Meshalam, Maluk, Adiah, Jashub, Sheel, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Adna, Chelal, Benaiah, Messiah, Mataniah, 
Bazalel, Benaiah, and Manasseh. Of the sons of Haram, Eleazar, Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maloch, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Shalom, Matathani, Matatai, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shemai. Of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Uiel, Benaiah, Bediah, Shekuhai, Benaiah, Meramoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matani, Jeshu. Of the sons of Bani, Benai, Shimei, Shemaiah, Nathan, Abdiah, Makna, Debai, Shabshai, Sharai, Azareel, Shalemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebu, Jael, Methathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, and Beniah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. And our text for this morning is going to be looking on Ezra chapter 10. And our title for this morning's message is Covenanted Repentance. Covenanted Repentance. Times of crisis demand response, don't they? People want to know something is being done. We often know too that not everything that is done in times of crisis is always helpful. Usually in dangerous times when immorality is excused, an established normal behavior can be set aside. But people see something needs to change. And with that change, people often look to where they believe power lies. Since March of 2020, people have largely looked to scientists and to politicians for the answers to our current time of crisis. Now that's quite sad. To control what has largely been uncontrollable and for what God alone has the control of. However, in our text, Ezra does not see the civil rulers of the Persian Empire that are in control as the ones with the power. He clearly does not. He does not seek any other counsel. He seeks God. He is weeping before him. Ezra is clearly, and we've seen this in his life since we were introduced to him in Ezra chapter 7, he is clearly dependent on God. Dependent so much on God that he didn't even bring an army escort along the route to Jerusalem. He didn't want to seem before the ruling power that he was depending upon them. He was depending rather upon God. A dangerous route leading to Jerusalem where God's hand was upon them to deliver him. And along that route they stopped 
They pray and they look for the answer to prayer from God. Ezra depended upon God. And he seeks the Lord in prayer now in our text. At the beginning of our text here. For the much greater problem. Not of danger along the route to Jerusalem. But the much, da- much, more, much more dangerous problem you could say. Of sin in the camp. The holy seed mixed with pagans. Leading to a path from God. We're not told everything that was going on. But we're told that they were following the abominations of the nations around them. And one of the worst ways this was manifested was widespread intermarriage. A great time of crisis. Now will there be a response to this great problem? Will it be the right response? In Ezra 9 we saw the problem of failing to be a people set apart. But now we see the response. And today dear friends. What can we learn from this response? This response to sin. This, and their covenanted response. Their covenanted response to crisis. Can it give us hope for the sin in our own nation? For our own day. For the sin within the wider church. Does it give us hope for those who have drifted from God? We may know of friends who have drifted from God. Does it give us hope in this area? And does it also give us hope for today? A time, no doubt, of great spiritual crisis. Number one, we're going to look at firstly the source of this covenant. So our title, we're going to be looking at covenanted repentance. But what is the source of of this covenant. Number one, what is the source of this covenant? And it can be very easy as covenanters, as we are, to misunderstand the source of why we are covenanters. The danger is we think that we are following in a man made tradition. We shouldn't think that way. The covenant to be biblical, any covenant to be biblical, must be something which God has stirred up in his people. It is a biblical response to God, to our covenant keeping God. In verse 1 it says this of our text. Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God... A very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. Also at the start of verse 3, it says this, Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them. Also in verse 5, it says this, Then Ezra rose and made the leaders of the priests... The Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. They responded in covenant. And this covenant was not something that originated with them. What brought about this gathering that we find in verse 1? Was it Ezra? Yes, the Lord no doubt used Ezra. But primarily it is God. It is a move of God moving his people together 
gathering them to what? To weep together over the sin in question. Then it's the source of this response we see is God. So in verse 5, then Ezra rose and made the leaders of the priests and Levites swear an oath that they would do according to this word. They were stirred up by God. God makes sinners alive. He makes them see their sin. He opens their eyes. He makes them alive. If there is a response that it doesn't come from God, if the source is not from God, it is something that is dead and lifeless. If God moves us to see the problems around us, it will not be pleasant, dear friends. It will mean we weep. We weep for our own sins. We weep for the sins of God's people. We weep for those on their way to hell. We weep for the nation turning away from God. And that's what a move of God does. We read of accounts of spontaneous moves of God in parts of the world, in Korea, in Scotland. And what do you hear? Men and women and children hungry for God and weeping through the night before their God. A move of God is the source of this response. It brings them together. It brings men, women, and children together. I remember I'd read this passage many times and it just hit me on Friday. I remember going through this and seeing children. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Women, children, everyone together, no one excluded. This word children's offspring, use. We, we, we teach our children. We want them to, to love God and to be on fire for the things of God, don't we? But what a sight it would be, wouldn't it, if we looked in there seeing children weeping. Not over them fighting with their brother or sister, but because of sin before God. Dear young people, who are here amongst us. Follow the good things you have learned from your parents. Treasure them. Treasure your godly parents. But above all else, follow God. Don't make it something where my parents have done it, therefore I'm going to do it. No, the word of God says it, therefore I believe it. This move of God, the source of this covenant, comes as an answer to prayer. It says in Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And the question we have to ask ourselves 
for a part of the world that hasn't seen revival since 1859? Do we ask? Do we pray to God? Do we want revival? Because it's a question we must ask ourselves. Because we can be so comfortable, can't we? We're quite comfortable in our lives. But does sin burden us to the point where we get to the point of where God's people were here? Weeping bitterly. And Ezra wasn't part of this sin, was he? But he identified himself with his people. Just as Daniel did. Do we want revival? Do we cry out to God for revival? So we've looked at the source of this covenant. It is God. Now we're at number two. We're going to look at the need of this covenant. The need of this covenant. And asking ourselves the question before we read this. Is it really necessary? We might ask ourselves. Is it really necessary to have a covenant before God? Because I think for many. For a long time in church life. We may think more and more. Are covenants really necessary? In verses 2 down to verse 4, and Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, and one of the sons of Elam spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. We might ask the question, is it really necessary? Can we just say sorry? Can we just say sorry, I've done that thing? And that is repentance. But dear friends, there's, in such, a, in such a confession, there's no commitment. There's no real commitment to change. Of what we will positively do in the place of sin. If we are serious about eating healthy... We don't just have a list of things of not to eat. We think of good food to replace. We think of trying to enjoy good food in the place of bad food. Changing our taste buds, as it were. We can have a very shallow view of what repentance is today. We are, yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we keep the faith, and we keep, sorry, we keep the covenant by faith. And that is all of grace. Our works are filthy, so when we think of our works, we fall short of the glory of God. We don't like to promise God anything. I don't know about you, do you ever feel that kind of, that pull back during prayer? You're, you're promising God something, and you feel your own sinful heart. You know you're going to fail, in a sense. Because we're sinners, But in repentance, we are turning from sin and we're turning to something else. We're turning from lawlessness to law-keeping. It is not in a vacuum. Because it will otherwise be filled with another sin. Those who battle with addiction, drugs, pornography, things like that. 
It's not enough to say to the person, stop it, is it? Oh, well, just stop it. Oh, well, that was easy. They need to turn from desiring evil things to desiring good things. It's not just stopping to lust after something for a period of time. It is loving positively Christ and His righteousness. You cannot love what you do not know, dear friends. Read His Word. Read it more. You cannot love the one you do not even talk to. Pray to Him more. In private, if we repent, we promise or covenant with God, you could say, that we will turn from that sin and to obey Him. Positively obey Him. I think that's some area where we may lack, isn't it? That positively obeying Him in the place of sin. In public sin, as we see here in Ezra chapter 10, we must covenant and promise before God publicly. If it's public sin. In a covenant, it is a promise. It is an oath. It is an agreement. That we will not return to that sin that we have turned from. Those who have joined churches will, churches have terms of membership. Any club will have terms of membership, things they must follow. And in terms of membership in church, it is one of the things we have here in the Reformed Presbyterian Church is to live a life consistent with our profession. That is a covenant, that is a promise. Upon joining. Those who get married promise in a public covenant to love that other person exclusively above all else. And we see the damage of that disregard of that covenant, that promise and that oath. Because we see more and more professing Christians living together unmarried. That is becoming a sad, sadly more common phenomenon. There is no commitment To one another. We see the importance of elders, ministers, deacons. All swearing that they believe and uphold the faith professed in the Westminster Standards. That is important publicly to swear for accountability. And that covenant is before God. Those promises are before God. So we are clear what is expected And what is promised. And there is a commitment to something. In Ezra chapter 10. There is a committing to turning. To reforming the church. That has fallen into error. That we would grow in our relationship with God. And with one another. That we confess together against a certain sin. And confess together. That we promise to put that sin to death. Number three now, the law of this covenant. So we've looked at the source, the need of this covenant. Now number three, we're going to look at the law of this covenant. Verses three and four. We'll just look at verse three. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. According to the law. 
according to the law, or to, in Hebrew, the Torah. The Torah. This covenant they swore to repent must be according to the law. The teaching of God, the instruction of God. That's what Torah means, teaching or instruction or the law of God. It commonly refers to the books of Moses, Genesis, to Deuteronomy. And from the days of Moses, the prophets, largely, their message has been this. Come back to the law from which you have departed from. Come back to the, you'll see that in the New Testament, they'll talk about the law and the prophets. The prophets were pointing them back to what they had departed from. This covenant response to sin, to be valid, to be worth anything, it must be according to the word of God. Any promise that we make in covenant before God, if it is not according to the word of God, it is not in any way valid or binding. We can only be bound in covenant with something that is in the word of God. We remember our blue banner, don't we? For Christ's crown and covenant. The covenanters marched under, in Scotland, marched under that that banner, raised after the national covenant they swore in 1638, in which the people of Scotland, the people of Scotland, it wasn't just a segment of the people of Scotland, it wasn't just the covenanters and there was everyone else. It was the people of Scotland swearing from all walks of life, levels of power and influence, all swearing this, and this is a small segment from it. With our whole hearts we agree and resolve all the days of our life constantly to adhere unto and to defend the aforesaid true religion and forbearing, that is abstaining, the practice of all novations, that's new laws, Already introduced in the matters of the worship of God. That was part of that oath they swore before God in 1638. It is only binding, dear friends, if it is biblical. It is only binding if it is biblical. To defend true religion is biblical. And to abstain from the inventions of men in worship is also biblical. This is binding on all. It was binding before. By the way, it was binding before they swore this. You say, why why did they do this? Because they're promising to obey. They're binding themselves. You could say they're doubly binding themselves to following the truth and following God. A true lawful covenant, the only one that can bind is the one according to God's word. Later, then in 1643, there was a solemn league and covenant binding today as it is consistent with the Word of God. There's no new obligation added. Christ is to be recognized as the head of church and state, He is the King of Kings. The representatives of these two islands swore before God of every level of power, of church, and of state, binding them and their posterity and us. Because that's our covenant-keeping God. It is, he is a God unto us and unto our children, is he not? That is covenanting language. This is language all the way throughout the scriptures. 
Haggai, when speaking to the people who come out of exile, they'd returned from Babylon. He said this to them, according to the word that I have covenanted with you when you, come, when you came out of Egypt, I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Those specific people in front of them hadn't actually come out of Egypt. Their fathers had. But the covenant was not just with the people right in front of them, with the seed, those who would follow. God is a God unto you and unto your children. That is covenantal language. Saul was condemned, King Saul, for breaking a covenant that was made with the pagan Gibeonites. The pagan Gibeonites had a covenant going back to Joshua chapter 9. Now what were they to do in Joshua? They were to wipe out the land, remove all the people. But the Gibeonites entered into covenant with God's people. Saul broke that covenant. And even that covenant with the pagan people brought famine upon the land. It says in 2 Samuel 21 verse 1, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. That goes right back to the treaty, the oath that was made in Joshua chapter 9. That was still binding. We must follow God. And we must follow His covenant with his people. Otherwise, dear friends, there'll be more wrath on this covenant-breaking land of ours. In verse 14, it says this in our text. Please, and they are gathering the people. They're about to carry out and see who is guilty of this sin. Please that the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and the judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. That is what this church discipline was doing. Turning away the wrath of God. Dear friends, it is so important That not only our churches deal with sin, but our nation deals with sin. So the wrath of God is turned away from us. Number four, we're going to look at the witness now. The witness of this covenant. So we've looked at the source, the need, the law. Now we're going to look at the witness of this covenant. What kind of witness is sin? Their witness at this point was, we're no different to the pagans. We're no different to you. And that has become something that maybe has crept into the church today. We we, we try to convince the lost people that we're just like you. And there's a sense in which, yes, we're sinners. But we are to be set apart in verse 19. Verse 19, it says this, And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. They were to be set apart. There was guilt. And there was promise to put away their guilt. To be set apart to their God. 
And this is what a covenant must do. A covenant must witness that we are to be set apart. Not that we're better than anybody else. We're not. We're not at all better than anyone else. In, back in 1990, when we last signed covenant renewal as a, as a denomination, we signed it to witness to the fact that we still hold or at least held back then, that Christ is to be recognized as the head of church and state, and we lament at the plight of our nation. Our nation has become much worse since 1990. The witness of our lives is also to show that he is our God. Now, to state again, as we stated in the last sermon on Ezra 9, If you are married to an unbeliever today, and that person is pleased to remain with you, you stay married to that person. And that is clear from Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This was an extraordinary time. Because God hates divorce. This is an extraordinary time when it was necessary. The sin was so widespread, it was necessary that this had to be put away. But overall, it's testifying to the destructive power of sin. And how we, dear friends, need to put away anything that says to the outside world, to our children, to other Christians, that God is not first in our lives. If someone is living unmarried with their partner, normally they won't be allowed to become a member of a church because it is a bad witness. And that person does not have a credible profession of faith, living in sin and damaging the covenant of marriage. It is a poor testimony before the world. The world will be watching their friends, our covenant promises, what we profess to do. And as we witness before a lost and dying world, We are to follow Christ and his covenant. To follow him, to obey him. So that we would be as covenanters in this this era. Not to set ourselves apart. All Christians should be covenanters in a sense. We're all covenanters. We're all people of promise before God. Yes, O Lord, I will follow you wherever you will lead me. No matter the cost. That is a Christian. We we visibly are to be witnesses of the life-transforming grace of God. Grace that says Christ is King. Not just on the Sabbath day, but in all the earth. In every sphere of life. Grace that says to the, the Christian in politics, God is to be served according to His law, not according to popular opinion. This covenant witness to this life transforming grace that God changes people. He changes people. He takes them away from sin and he makes them obedient. Now we're not perfectly obedient on this earth. Of course not. But we are recognizing as believers in Jesus Christ that Christ is the head of all. But there's also witness here 
of the consequences of covenant breaking. In verses 7 and 8 of our text, and they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, all his property would be confiscated. And he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. There would be church discipline. They would be put out. There there are consequences for flagrant disregard of the covenant of God. Because of what it says as a witness. Finally, very quickly, we're going to look at the promise of this covenant. So we've looked at the source, the need, the law, the witness of this covenant. It is a witness to the world. It is a witness to our children who are also bound by this same covenant. But there is also a wonderful promise. There's a wonderful, life-giving promise of this covenant. Because so quickly we can think of... Look at all the things, you, if, you, if anybody's read through the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643, the promises that are made, we will do this, we will do this. It makes it sound like, well, do I have to do this in order to... We can forget that there's grace, there's mercy, and there's forgiveness at the throne of grace. Verse 14, remind ourselves of verse 14 again, of turning away the wrath of God. Please let the elders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come to the appointed time together with their elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. The response of this, the response of covenant keeping is the response of faith. It's the response of faith. To continue in sin, to rejecting the warnings is unbelief. This covenant and any other covenant brought about by God working in God's people in a response to a time of crisis, a time of great need. We see it in the kings of old in Israel. It is all based upon the foundation of God's grace and mercy and love. Had it not been that case, God could not enter into covenant with any of us. We're sinners. The only way we can have friendship, relationship, and that close intimacy with God is by grace, mercy, and love. Not because of our our faithfulness. We do not earn our salvation. We obey out of a heart of love. We disobey when we do out of a heart of hatred toward our God. We do not do this perfectly. Praise God, because our salvation doesn't depend on that. But, my dear friends, there will be fruit. There will be a fruit of obedience that says, this person is different, this this man or woman or child is different than those outside of the covenant. Otherwise, dear friends, what are people coming into? If we are just like the world... It's not to say, hey, look at my family, we're all fantastic. But if we're not any way different, if our lives are not in some way different, 
not perfect, then what are we really offering them in, in the grace of Christ? Those who have turned in faith and repentance from sin to God will have God's wrath turned away from them. And those who have repented unto life and are in union with Christ and know Him intimately will never taste God's wrath. You may be disciplined in this life. You may experience correction, but you will never face the wrath of God. This repentance Humanly speaking, what, what they've been asked to do is incredibly difficult. I think we, we lose that sometimes. In verse 44 of this text, right at the very end of the chapter, all these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And I believe that they have that there just to show how hard this was. This was probably horrible to go through. Repentance is not easy. Because what we are asked to repent of, we absolutely cling to and love. The sinner on their way to hell has a sense, if they've heard the gospel and their conscience and everything else, know that this sin is going to bring them to hell. And there's a sense in which they don't care. Because their heart hasn't been changed. Repentance from sin is not just hard, it is impossible unless God moves in the sinner. The promise of this covenant for those who have been moved by God and turned by faith to Him is that there will be an inheritance that will never be taken away. There's, there's consequences here of them being the property been taken away which was a sign of God's favor, and then been put out of the congregation of the people of God. But the promise of this covenant, this eternal covenant, of which we trust in Jesus Christ, it brings forgiveness forever, grace and mercy, that is found only in Christ Jesus, and promises a promised land, of which, which is filled with milk and honey. With all the wonderful fruit. A wonderful land. Which will never ever be taken away from us. And there will be no wrath. This covenant repentance dear friends. Is the response of public repentance. It is when God's people come to a point there is crisis. Our covenanting forefathers came to a crisis. Two years beforehand, there were, every year there was more and more compromise with the king. There was more and more rule from King James I than King Charles I. And it came to the point where they had to put, their, put a line in the sand and said no. Christ is the head of the church, which led him to the covenant which followed in 1638. It was a time of crisis, a time of national crisis. Here we have the sin of intermarriage, endangering the whole nation, endangering 
the witness before the world. Great public sin is a time of great public crisis. But dear friends, let it also be a time of great public repentance. And that must, we can't just look outside there, dear friends, and say, I wish all the people would... Revival begins with God's people. It begins in our hearts. It begins in our homes. And now out of that, it spills out from there, like a cup overflowing out into the wider community. It starts in the hearts of God's people when they're on fire for God. Have you repented dear friend have you trusted in Christ have you left behind your sin have you come to him have you come promising to follow him to obey him no matter what may follow you are coming and following after him come trust the savior if you have not who has kept the law perfectly in our place come Dear friend, and be saved. If you have not tasted of the fountain of living water, come and leave behind what keeps you from him. Come, follow him. It is sweet. It is wonderful. It is the greatest thing on this earth. And dear friends, we have just but a small window of the wonderful blessings to come in our future. Amen.